prison and half can Oh God! Daddy, stay on your bike! Dude, burning and you don't want to turn around anymore and you know if somebody now attacks you're going to be like blown out of the water but you just go no i just keep going just keep going tied on the inside it's this solo on the barriers oh what about that now then everybody i am tom ramsey and welcome to the edge coaching podcast this podcast will provide a clear insight into the world of athletic performance and help provide a clear, relatable understanding into subject areas revolving training, nutrition, stress, psychology, and much, much more. Without further ado, let's begin. Good afternoon, hello, and welcome to the latest podcast. This is episode number 50, and today I am sat with Matt Nelson. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So today, um, really happy to have Matt on the podcast. Um, Matt is one of my good friends, and we've known each other for a long time now, uh, probably since school, albeit um, there's been times in our life where we haven't necessarily seen much of each other um, due to you doing a lot of training and different jobs and just adult life, I guess. But in the last few months, we've kind of got to know each other a bit better. Again, we've been out on training rides. He's been absolutely putting me in a box on the bike uh, and on the run as well, which has been good. Um, and yeah, good to have him uh, in the room today talking about some stuff with regards to triathlon and training as well. Um, just to set the scene, like we always do, um, we are both sat in my office slash dining room. Um, I have made Matt a coffee he is. Oh, you asked for milk, didn't you? I did ask for I milk. Haven't, yeah. Are you so okay I, with the I, black I can coffee? Drink black coffee with no sugar as well. Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> he asked for he asked for milk in his coffee. I didn't give him milk in his coffee. He's also got a glass of water there, um, and so have I. Um, and yeah, we're going to have an hour of talking about uh, everything to do with triathlon and training and who is the real Matt Nelson. So Matt is an elite multi-sport athlete. He is the, and do correct me if I'm wrong, Matt. This might be outdated, I don't know. You might have had a few more medals as well since then. You are the 2022 British champion and national champion for duathlon. That's correct, yeah. Um, and you got eighth in the world duathlon champs. I did, yeah. Was there anything, any other major achievements to add to that catalogue of um, of medals? No, not, not this year. I mean, I did those three races early season um, and then proceeded to crash my bike. So I haven't done much since then. Prior to that, I've I've won previous British and national titles and a couple of British university titles before okay. then. But this year has been relatively quiet just because of the bad the bad bike crash, really. Yeah. So um, we'll come on, come on to that crash in a, in a little while um, and, and we'll go into the ins and outs of how you overcome that and everything. Um, but... Furthermore, so if we can go through a bit of a a, hist- a brief history of time, I guess, um, in terms of you know where you've come from in the last few years um, and where tri- triathlon took took it up into your life and, and how you've progressed over the the last five six years from there. Yeah, so it's probably easier if I start from when I started triathlon. So that started about ten years ago for me. So I was. A fairly decent swimmer prior to me taking up triathlon and that was when I was 19 years old I stepped away from competitive swimming 
and then started multi-sport from then. It was one of my school teachers who got me involved in it, a gentleman called John Bernard. Persuaded me to buy my first road bike. Really, really loved riding, thought it was fantastic. Coming from an antisocial sport like swimming, where you get up at half past three in the morning, you swim from sort of quarter past four till sort of half six, go to school, sixth form, whatever it is you do, swim again in the evenings, you can't really talk to anyone because your head's in the water. This kind of revelation of being outside on the bike, stopping for coffee, seeing the countryside was fantastic for me. So I fell in love with cycling. The natural ability of swimming was already there and I was already a fairly good runner. So it seemed quite natural to kind of step into triathlon. Tried my hand at it a few times and fell in love with the sport and was naturally relatively good at it. And then progressed from there. I went through kind of the age group ranks where most people kind of start, progressed up to the minimum standard to race at elite level. And then I've just progressed through there to championship selection now. Fair play. I am. Um, I can completely relate to to what you were saying with regards to swimming. Uh, a lot of you might not know on the podcast, but uh, in my early years, uh, I did a fair bit of swimming, and and I was part of the Driffield Swimming Club. And um, I think, to be fair, I think uh, I was there at a similar time to what you were, but you were in much more superior lane than I was I think at the time I think we were there at Um, the same time for a brief period of time Um, and then and then in all fairness we we were in different years at school so uh, we didn't see much of each other at school Um, and uh, I think you did a lot of your training on your own whereas I had a little kind of um, mini group of friends that I battered around the lanes on on my bike Um, would you say like in terms of timelines you were later to cycling than I was then would you say or yeah I mean I didn't really start road cycling seriously or any, any kind of structured bike training till I was probably 20 21 oh right wow so my, I mean I, my first sort of experience of cycling was me doing a paper round really so I, I did ah. a paper round from the age of 13 14 and that was kind of me first cycling a, on a reasonable bike I guess yeah, yeah but yeah it was it was probably 2021 that I first started structured structured bike training wow so I was, I was pretty late to a game really crikey yeah. do you feel like then uh on a bit of reflection that your biking might be better if you did start earlier or do you think maybe not um on reflection some things I, I certainly found were lacking so my bike handling skills people who've biked from a young age I mean take you for example I mean mm. your bike handling is far superior to mine and I've certainly noticed that mm. compared to say young kids who can sort of do wheelies and all yeah, this kind yeah, of yeah, stuff yeah. And, and throw the bike around like it's attached to them I mean I certainly don't do that but on a physiological level so if we talk FT I know that FTP number mm. I mean my FTP is pretty good my CDA is pretty low mm. I mean I, I put out reasonably good numbers on my bike arguably as good as I do at any other discipline now yeah. so I don't feel like I've been left behind I, I've had to play catch up but I threw myself into it wholeheartedly. Yeah. My numbers are pretty good now. I feel like you've had enough time to develop that overall endurance capacity and and everything which is directly related to the numbers that you're putting out. Like you say, if you were to go and throw yourself into a cyclocross race or, or yeah. a crit race, I think there'd be... Um, your fitness wouldn't necessarily reflect your result. Um, but the reality is in, in the discipline that you're doing, you know, you don't need as much of the bike handling type stuff. So, so you're doing okay. Uh, well, you're doing brilliant, brilliantly. So. Um, but yeah, where did the running come into it then? So running was a bit of a peculiar one. I kind of did a little bit of running alongside my swimming. I sort of did the biathlon scene for a little bit. Um, I did this blink called biathlon in my very early years, which is signed a, like a short, very, very short distance duathlon. Um, so it's run, swim, run. Um, so I did a little bit of running in preparation for that 
but nowhere near the run volume that I do now. Mm. I would probably only run 10 to 15 miles a week. But I did quite a lot of speed work, so I was inherently quite quick, which I've kind of kept in my later years, which is why I still think I'm relatively fast. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't do any anything like the run volume I do now. That was a similar sort of time to cycling, really. Mm-hmm. Early 20s, I started ramping up the run volume. But as we'll probably talk about later on, I was very fragile. So coming from a, an unloaded, non-impact sport like swimming, uh, I was very fragile, got injured a lot. It took me a long, long, long time to adapt mm-hmm. to running. But yeah, early 20s, we run. That's an interesting one. And I think it's to some extent what I'm going through now uh, you know with my battering of shin splints and now my Achilles issues and so on um, so was your running injuries then were they all like lower shank or were they were they a, a combination of loads of different stuff lots of different things I had no major serious injury kept, which kept me out of running for a long period of time but I had niggles which definitely manifested into injuries so I, I suffered from something called patellofemoral pain syndrome which manifests itself in different ways depending on who you are, but it typically is medial or lateral knee pain, mm. um, kind of a clicking, niggly, burny type sensation for most people. A lot of people describe it as ITB pain, but something related to that. So I suffered with that seasonally. So when I took my off season and reloaded again, I would always come back with 10 to 12 weeks of knee pain. Right. Um, I also had shin splints and then I got soft tissue injuries. I tore my calf a few times. I had Achilles tendinopathy which I still suffer with now to some degree. I had post-tib tendinopathy disorder, which again, I still suffer with now, wow. but nothing to the point it would stop me running for a long period of time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I could run and I ran with pain and I still run with pain now for the most part. But yeah, I suffered a lot. So where's your pain at the minute then when, you, when you're training? Right ankle, right foot. Right. So every time I, I step, basically, I have pain oh, to some wow. degree. There's, there's always some element of discomfort there, but you learn to manage that. And is that is that the reality of training at your level and like if you kind of look across the 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 kind of spectrum of of athletes at your level in triathlon do you feel like most most of them are are managing or trying to manage certain injuries all the time i think most of them yeah are carrying some sort of injury or niggle or problem um and it's different for everybody but i could list a number of very very high level athletes who have a weak point in mm. their anatomical chain. Mm. So take, take Alistair Browning, for example, has had a history of horrendously weak ankles and Achilles problems. Right. But does it inhibit his performance? Well, typically, no. Yeah. It's just something that you have to manage as an athlete. Yeah. Um, and you manage your mileage and you cross-train and you do everything you can to, to skirt around that. But yeah, I do think it's something that most athletes suffer with. So leading on from that, um, I, be- I guess it's a good time to talk about your job. Um for those who don't know, what do you do as a job? And and also, I guess, how do you feel like that might help you with regards to your your sport and, and, and triathlon? So I work in sport and injury rehabilitation. I've worked in this job for four or five years now. Uh, I'm also a PT alongside that and have various other bits and bobs and qualifications. But yeah, typically um, I, I work in sport and injury rehabilitation. And it's a massive asset to have when it comes to managing your own injuries and knowing when to train, when not to train, what's serious enough to train through, when you need to stop, how to rehab your own injuries. It, it's a massive, massive asset. I mean, if anyone's ever been injured before and doesn't have the education to know how to deal with it, it's horrendously scary when you get some tiny niggle. You think, oh God, that, that's me now. My mm-hmm. event's done. 
I can't train, I have to take time off. And even financially, it's expensive to have private treatment as well. Mm. It's stressful trying to get appointments nowadays. Clinicians are difficult to get hold of. The NHS is not supporting people in that sort of medium anymore. Mm. Um, it's difficult to get GP appointments. So yeah, it's really, really stressful. So if you're in a position of knowledge, it's a massive advantage to have. Absolutely. And uh, so do you essentially just self-assess all of your sports-related injuries at the minute then? or Yeah, typically. I mean, if, if something is really severe, I might get a second opinion on things. Yeah. Or if I can't do the treatment myself. Um, but yeah, typically I will assess most of the problems myself yeah. and I just self-assess things on a daily basis at the moment. I mm. mean, I nearly always have back pain as well. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I mean, working in injury rehabilitation, you're bent over a lot of the time in a yeah. pretty uncomfortable position. Um, so I often have a sore back, time trialing as well as to anyone who rides a time trial bike for an extended period of time will know putting your back and neck in extreme flexion and or extension is not comfortable um but yeah i, I self-assess and manage things day to day at the moment so on that then um obviously the, the level of performance that you're at um because i have absolutely no idea as to kind of uh the stages of, of this like and your financial backing or anything like that but you are, um, you know, at a level where you are incredible. I would assume very, very, very close to the point where you could be doing it full time. You know, and and especially at that at that level, I would assume that, um, you know, based on things like finishing time in an Olympic distance triathlon you are only, you know, you're within touching distance of athletes who are getting paid full, you know, to do it full time. And there's probably even guys that you're faster than that, that, you know, are getting, doing it full time. Yeah. How do you feel like your job, because obviously you've just ex- explained that your job gives you back pain and, and that influences, I'm assuming you're training quite a lot and so on. And obviously the time on your feet when you're working, the lack of sleep, the extra commitment, the lack of recovery. Um, how much do you feel like your job impacts your racing and training performance? And what does it take for you to just say, you know what, I'm going to stop doing that and I am going to start doing it full time. And is that something that you want? So I have trained and raced full time in the past. I mean, largely at university, you are a full time athlete. It's not an enormous commitment, isn't university in terms of hours at university. I mean, I did study quite hard. I mean, I wanted a first in my degree. So I, I, do, I worked hard at university. Um, but even then, you are essentially a full-time athlete. So un- under no illusion, I, I was a full-time athlete whilst at university. Mm. And I performed extremely well at university. Um, I won multiple university titles and was nearly as fittest as, I, as I've ever been. Did you do a full-time degree then or was it part-time? I did a full-time degree and oh. I worked alongside that as well. Oh, right. Yeah. So I, I basically trained full-time. Um, full-time degree and and worked Mm -hmm. alongside it so I did all three and and did pretty well in all of them Um, but in terms of impact on my sport and training probably not as what a lot of people would think so I I have quite a busy work life so a typical quiet week of work for me will be 25 to 30 hours but I do work up to 60 hours a week sometimes Um, if I'm particularly busy or if my second job needs assistance that sort of thing I, I can do 60 hour work week and juggle 25 hours training on top of that as well mm-hmm. and it's not as much of an impact as people think so I, I balance it really well and I, I've learned now what my body can cope with what it can't cope with and where to kind of squeeze sessions around that um, so what I'll do to kind of balance things is I will train in the mornings if I can and work in the evenings which, which I much prefer to do 
So if I'm at my second job, I will train for four or five hours and then I'll maybe work a 10-hour unsociable hours later evening shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't find the balance particularly difficult. What, what I do find difficult is if you are a full-time athlete and you are injured or things aren't going very well, it's incredibly stressful because you have nothing outside of sport. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing I found hardest at university. So I picked up an incredibly nasty injury whilst at university. I split the aponeurosis of my calf which is like a sheath which encapsulates the calf, encapsulates the lower part of the calf, basically, um, in a very broad nutshell. So I split that quite badly. How did you do that? I was racing 1,500 metres at British universities. Right. Split that, and I was on crutches and unable to train for a period of time because there's nothing you can really do other than rest the injury. Mm. So I had nothing outside of that because I did it at the end of my academic year. So I couldn't train, had no university to kind of occupy my brain with wasn't really working too much either so I was just sat twiddling my thumbs going <laughs> stir crazy for a period of weeks and weeks and weeks yeah but so having work to take your mind away from that injury and change the topic of conversation even I find quite refreshing and I'm a better athlete when I'm working mm. than I am when I'm full-time mm. so in terms of financially if someone sort of said oh we'll give you 30 grand to go full-time a year yeah I would snap their arm off of that but I would still do some kind of work mm. alongside that because it's it's good for me mentally, I think. Mm. And I think for a lot of people, it probably would be as well. And it's that, I guess it's that, like you just um, suggested, it's that change of scenery, change of topic. And actually, you know, you develop interpersonal relationships, you 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 talk about um, different subject areas with different people. And although, you know, a lot of it's still sports-related injuries... You know, you're you're caring for another person as opposed to constantly being thinking about yourself. And I think as an athlete, inherently we are incredibly selfish individuals. Um, yeah. And especially, you know, in the sport of triathlon, when you're putting in that amount of hours, you know, it's it's very cliche term, but it it is a lifestyle. Every th- every single thing you do in your life can be completely encapsulated by the sport, and and it's all you can ever think about. So if you have you know um, a day or a few days of thinking about other people and thinking about their injuries and their their what what's going on in their life as well, because um, I know a lot of what you do is not just oh, this person's got a calf injury, let me treat it. A lot of it is actually looking at their, their background and, and the training loads that they're doing, giving advice about the different aspects of that as well. Yeah. Um, and I think I can understand that being very refre- refreshing. And actually, to relate that back to my own life, if I don't necessarily think about sport, but I think about business, um, if I spend five, six, seven days a week purely working on my own business and the edge coaching, it can actually be... Um, not mundane but it can it can be too much sometimes and actually just changing i used to work part-time at a gym doing personal training and and that one day a week doing personal training with a switch of clients from being purely performance related to actually being more like overall health and maintenance and weight loss related that was a real refreshing thing and it and it it kept um you know i was a lot more contact with people there and it it helped things along the way so i can understand um definitely what you're saying there um so yeah so i think uh this is you know what a lot of people don't don't think about i think you know a lot of people think you know the the absolute pinnacle of performance is to take it full time and be a professional athlete um but the reality of it is that comes with some cons and some negative uh, aspects as well um so to put 
this into all like your performance into perspective then because um there will be a lot of people listening to this podcast that have heard of you and know fully who you are and what your performance is like but there will be some people who don't haven't necessarily heard of you um however there are there are stars of triathlon where where a lot of people will have heard of them purely down a lot of it down to tv time um, and interviews on and people like that the likes of the Brownlee brothers then um have you raced against them and uh where do you fit compared compared to them in in the different disciplines and overall um so take the Brownlee brothers then uh, i'd raced with them actually at one of the biggest what at the time was one of the biggest events uh, annually in triathlon which was the beijing international it had kind of an all-star lineup and i I got accepted onto the start list at that event. I think wow. it was 2017, but there was Henry Schumann there from South Africa, the now Olympic champion Christian Blumenfeld. Wow. Both Brownleys were there. Ben Canute was there, a really good American athlete. And I raced, I raced not particularly well because I didn't get along with the food there in China. <laughs> um, but going into the race, I was in incredibly good shape and should have been competitive towards the front end of that race, really, physiologically. But, you know, we have bad days sometimes, and yeah. it was a bad day to have a bad day. But yeah, I raced with them guys there. Um, but yeah, I've I raced them a couple of times domestically as well. Um, but in terms of where I am compared to them, so the Brownies particularly would swim time out with me over a 1500. If I'm swim fit, which I'm not right now because of my shoulder, but when I'm swim fit, I'd probably lose a minute to the Brownies. Right. Um, on a time trial bike, Alistair's better than Johnny on a time trial bike. I don't think I would lose anything to Johnny over a time trial. I'm a, I'm a pretty good time trial cyclist it's probably one of my strengths mm -hmm. and even running now i don't think off a time trial bike over 10k i would lose a particularly large amount of time if, right. if i had a good day um if we're taking sort of olympic distance at, the, at their peak um alistair and johnny would both run sub 30s off the bike mm. but i don't think they're in that sort of shape now right. um and i can run at the moment probably 31 low to 30 high off a hard bike mm -hmm. um i mean i train I run a 32 give or take off the bike nearly every week. Mm. So in a, in a race environment, I'd probably mm. run a 30 high. 30 so, so yeah, so realistically putting, if you were in a race against them and, and yeah. they've, they've had one of their best performances, you've had one of your best performances yeah. um, over that kind of Olympic distance, you'd be one to two minutes apart. Yeah, kind I'd, of I'd expect to get, yeah, I'd expect to get dropped on the swim, not really lose anything on the yeah. bike. And at the moment with my running, probably not lose much at all. Right. My, my running of late has really stepped up. Yeah. Um, it's something I've worked really hard on, on lately. And I mean, sitting here right now, I'm probably in close to 14 flat 5k shape. Wow. Which, yeah. as a multi-sport athlete, is not, not too shabby, I don't think. Only a few weeks ago or a month ago, um, I went to the local park run at East Park Um and for those of you who live, live anywhere near in East Yorkshire, you'll know of the park run. It is arguably one of the fastest courses around this area. Um, there's definitely faster park run courses out there. Um, but around Hull and East Yorkshire, it is one of the fastest. Um, and when I went down there, I saw Matt warming up and I kind of asked him if, you know, he's in short, in, in shape for a course record. And he quite fancied his chances, I think, didn't you? I did, yeah. Um, Anyway, we went off and uh, I was in all right running shape at the time, but um, obviously nowhere near what, what Matt can do. And uh, we set off and I saw I saw him tear off in the distance. Um, anyway, you you finished a good uh, three or three minutes ahead of me-ish. Um, and I asked him, and 
let's spit it out. Were you four seconds off course record? Was that? Yeah, or? I, I, don't, I can't remember exactly how many I was. I think, yeah, no, no I think yeah. it was maybe eight. But yeah, what time did you get there? I think it was was it fourteen fifty six, maybe somewhere yeah, around there. I think it but, was. but it was yeah, a frustrating day for me. I mean, I got frustrating day. Yeah. I got held up on mile three. So the, the plan for me that day was to run four forty five miles three times in a row, and then close in sort of low four minute for mm. the last point one, and I did. 75% of that plan but I had to jog mile three right. basically so yeah got stuck day. behind a few um a few back markers so to speak yeah. um and and yeah for those who have of you who know that that course it is two laps of a lake um and obviously for the faster runners you do end up lapping um quite a lot of the runners um but the, you're running on a path which is quite narrow so you have to kind of navigate the the slower runners and go on the grass and you know, for a lot of people, it doesn't particularly matter. Um, but for people who are looking for a fast run, um, four seconds here or there can make a, quite a substantial difference. Um, so obviously, coming from initially a, a swimming background then, um, one would assume that swimming was your strongest of the three disciplines. Do you have a strongest of the three disciplines? And if so, which one is it? So initially it was swimming. When I, when I first came to triathlon, swimming was comfortably my strongest discipline. But when you pull swim, you are not an open water swimmer. The two are completely different disciplines. <laughs> so just because you're a good pool swimmer does not mean that transfers directly across to swimming in a lake, or at least not well in a pack when it comes to swimming um, in a triathlon. So I was a very good pool swimmer. I was a relatively low four minute, 400 freestyler. Um, but not particularly a great open water swimmer. Right. When I when I first transferred across, I was swimming sort of still probably 15 hours a week um, and would swim low nine minutes for 7.50, which is reasonably good um, in triathlon standards. Mm. But there was an event every year um, called British Uni- British University College Sport mm-hmm. Championships or Bucks. Bucks. Um, and that took place in a pool. And when I, when I raced that event, I was always extremely competitive at the front end of the swim. I could swim a low, low eight minutes, 7.50, because I had that pull background. So initially, swimming was my best discipline, comfortably. I don't really enjoy swimming, and I certainly don't enjoy it anymore. Um, so cycling then became my best discipline, just because I put the most amount of time into it. I fell in love with the sport, and I saw enormous progression. Because when I, when I first started, I mean, my FTP was like 220 watts. Um, so I became obsessed with this notion of putting out more power over the hour and these objective markers everywhere became just a massive drive for me. Um, so cycling became my best discipline. Um, and I still struggled with running at this point. I still, like you do, had this ongoing battle with injury mm. after injury after injury, niggles after niggles, and I couldn't string together a, a decent block of training with big mileage. So my running didn't see that same level of improvement. So cycling became my best discipline, mm. um, followed by swimming than running but now it's my cycling and running are now very close hence my relatively good duathlon results right and do you feel like um in terms of i mean we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics of your training shortly but do you in terms of your training do you um kind of divvy those sessions out equally between the three disciplines then or do you go through blocks where you periodize more running or more cycling and so on I mean, I will periodize things differently depending on the event that I'm doing. Um, I break things up time-wise as opposed to number of sessions. I mean, I'll typically swim four times a week. I ride six and I run five. 
right and then i strength and condition twice a week as well so yeah. that's typically my normal weekly split but cycling takes up far more time than any yeah. other discipline mm. i will swim occasionally in a 75 minute session but typically for an hour mm. five run sessions will typically only take five and a half to six hours worth mm. and then my cycling will take up 15 hours sometimes sometimes mm-hmm. even more than that yeah so is yeah. that uh with that then would you say that you um do generally more intensity and quality in the running and the swimming over the biking is the biking typically more longer longer miles and therefore lower intensity or i mean i i'm known for doing intensity quite often i mean i think a lot of people who sort of mess like message me or comment on my strava kind of say oh is it another hard session another hard session Mm -hmm. and my body can cope with intensity quite well and because of my my work life as well i i train quite a lot of intensity quite regularly and my body can cope with that um so if i have the time the intensity comes down and the volume goes up um but if i'm pressed for time i will do intense sessions every day mm. so bar friday where i have a particularly long working day mm-hmm. i will do a session every day at least so uh, a bit more specifics for those who are um interested then um we are i believe roughly 10 days out from your next target race yep. that that target race is the european elite duathlon championships is that right that's correct yeah. yeah on the 17th of september so how long have you been targeting this race for and i'm assuming in the last week or so you have been on your peak weeks of training ready for that race what does your training look like on a on a weekly basis at the minute so i wasn't initially sure i'd be selected for this race um we didn't get confirmation till i think it was the 12th or 13th of august so i I prepared hoping that i would get selected based off my prior results but we we were basically delayed on being told so whoever it was that was um in the running for selection as well i assume was doing the same sort of thing we were hoping we'd be selected but not really knowing so i'd been preparing for it preemptively um so a lot of my stuff building up to that had been 5k based stuff really really fast 5k track work and trying to reincorporate some speed into my legs um because after my injury it took me a while to get to get any serious kind of structured training back in but yeah a lot of serious speed work on the track um and then yeah i've been basically dropping the bike volume down a little bit and replacing that with a lot of intensity on the bike so a lot of sort of short distance vo2 lactate tolerance um sessions on the bike the volume's not been too high and not too much swimming either because it's not specific at the moment so the swimming's taken a little bit of a back seat and it has been for a while now just because of the rehab from the shoulder mm-hmm. so yeah it's been a lot of intensity on the run and bike and very fast bricks as well mm-hmm. so running off the bike very hard so um as a snapshot then uh, yeah. it is wednesday today let's give me your monday tuesday wednesday three days that you've done today uh, this, this week so. Monday did I run on the track on Monday was it yesterday I was at the track Monday was track because you were in the rain weren't you oh, is that, was that Monday I think so yeah um, Monday track session was the session was a couple of miles warm up and then it was 600-200 times 4 um, the 600s were in 134-135 pace the 200s were 30 seconds 4 rounds of that and then a round of 8 400s um and they were in 65 seconds and then dropped to 63s wow which feels pretty comfortable now and for those people who aren't kind of aware of what sort of pace that equates to it's 
I mean, working on the 65 pace is sub 14 minute 5k shape. That's kind of where you need to be at. And to put that into perspective, if I was to run one lap of the track absolutely full gas, as fast as I possibly can, just one lap, I could maybe match that just about for one lap. But I certainly wouldn't be able to repeat it at all ever again. <laughs> um, that I mean, you know, running for me is something that I've started doing the last year or so a bit more seriously. And, and then, you know, I I'm, I'm kind of feel like I'm doing all right with it. And then I look, listen to some of the times that you're doing and I, it just absolutely blows me away by how fast you are. Um, so, yeah, was that your only session on Monday? No, or? so Monday I also did uh, sort of a medium length bike ride. I was on the bike for two and a half hours. Um, there was some short... 15 to 20 second VO2 type intervals in there. I also did a bit of transition work on Monday, so jumping on off the bike, um, practicing with my elastic bands tied to my sh- uh, tied to my bike, and sort of flying mounts and dismounts. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I did an easy swim on Monday as well. So it was a it was a pretty chilled day because it was I'd raced on the Sunday. So Monday was <laughs> what, what I call a pretty so, chilled Monday. <laughs> so the day after a race, which you went and won by 10 minutes, yeah. uh, I'll just add. Um, you did all three disciplines yeah. and two of those disciplines you had Sessions. very, very hard intensity in there. Yeah, yeah, um, but this one was easy. Um, <laughs> but but the, the run the run sessions at that sort of intensity feel quite manageable now. Mm. As long as I don't go under 63 seconds per lap now, it, it's pretty manageable for me, mm. is that? Um, and did, like, just to put it in perspective again, so that race that you did last Sunday... Mm. Um, was that a standard distance? Yeah. Um, and yeah, you won it by 10 minutes. We had a quick conversation before we started the podcast. He, he won that event by 10 minutes and he realized just how far he was in the lead in the run. So you did your first 5K in what was... Yeah, sub-16, so 15 mid to high, yeah. Yeah, and um, then you he said he jogged the last 5K of that, that yeah. run, um, which again to put it into perspective his jogging the last 5k is still faster than i can run 5k um but, but uh and then yeah so straight from that um uh a good feed i'm assuming that evening and then like say uh going in and training hard on the monday is that typical for you like training hard the day after a race or no no i mean if it's if it's a lucky race and it's not too stressful i mean i'll i'll leave a train the afternoon after i've raced that, that's not uncommon for me to do a couple of hours after i've raced right. Um, even if it's just on the bike to spin the legs. But yeah, if it's not a race where I'm obliterated afterwards, I will nearly yeah. always train hard the day after. Mm. Um, I guess that race was more like a training session in itself as opposed to thinking about yeah. a, a race per se. Uh, then what, what happened on the Tuesday then? So Tuesday, so this is a bit of an idea of what it's like trying to juggle work around training. So I was up for work at 5 to 5 on Tuesday. Um, so I didn't get much sleep on the Monday night just by the nature of being up before 5am. I worked most of the day. Uh, squeezed a treadmill session in whilst I was at work and that actually consisted of some intervals as well um, just because I was trying out race equipment for Bilbao so I did a couple of miles at five minute mile pace and then a couple of progressive 400s as hill reps and then an easy swim after that Um, but that's all I did on Tuesday because I worked sort of 12 hours Mm. um, and then squeezed a bit of training around that and okay. then just chilled out when I got back in from work. But I, was, I, was, I thought you usually work later in the week. Is Tuesday's not a, a regular? No, not a regular one. No. But like that was my second job, uh, yeah. helping out with the council. And ah, right. yeah, okay. so I, I did a bit of work on Tuesday. And then uh, Wednesday today, what did you do today? So today I did a couple of hours on the bike. I did some very hard, sort of minute long, up to a minute, yeah, up to, up to ninety second long efforts on the bike. 
Um, I think six of those maybe, and then some shorter ones as well. But they were like full gas, um, sort of balls out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think power wise, they were probably six fifty for the ninety seconds, six fifty mm-hmm. to seven hundred watts for the ninety seconds, um, and then the 15, 20 second efforts, I tried to sort of peak at a thousand watts mm. and then ease it off after that. And then just spun the legs around that. And then I did sort of a soft brick off the back of that. So I did an hour um, running with one of my teammates, just flushing the legs out. So we just nice. did an hour cross country run, just nice and easy. So um, in terms of your power profile as a cyclist then, yeah. um, obviously the discipline that I know most about, and we, we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago, when you realized that this next target event was a draft legal event, yeah. um, the racing dynamic is much different. Um, you know, it, it's it's less long sustained efforts that you can sit at a certain power at, and it's more intermittent, um, high intensity on off kind of racing where people are trying to break away from groups and so on um, and, and make, make moves. Um, Tell me a little bit about you know what you've done with your cycling training on the knowledge that this event is a draft legal event. Well, we went out for a bike ride, didn't we? We did. We went out for a bike ride to kind of kickstart me doing some higher intensity efforts. Yeah. Um, which was very good fun. Yeah. Um, we went racing around Goodmanham, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Doing some high my, intensity stuff. So, uh, like, my power profile is um, more suited to these short, sharp efforts. Being a cyclocross racer, mountain bike racer, and crit racer, it, it, you know, you, you tend to be better at short efforts with, with short recoveries. Um, completely contrasting to a typical triathlete's uh, kind of um, training uh, zones and, and their power profile. So it's it was very um, nice for me uh, to get a message off Matt to say, oh, do you mind doing a session together um, to, to, so we can do some efforts? And we went up to the local village where there's a hill and we basically raced each other up, up this hill for a bit. Um, but what was interesting, I mean, I'm not in the best of uh, bike, bike shape at the minute. What was interesting, though, is that like probably on, on one full gas effort, I had the edge over... No pun intended. I had the edge over um, Matt. Um, but in terms of consistency of efforts, it was clear that your endurance was um, uh, much stronger than mine because you were able to repeat those efforts a bit better than I was. And your recovery after that effort was substantially quicker than mine. Um, but yeah, you've essentially had to change your power profile, haven't you? You've, you've had yeah. to kind of sharpen you up a lot more, do a lot more short, sharp efforts. And why is that? Give give the listeners a, an insight into why you might have to do that. Well, in this sort of draft legal racing, which is, to be fair, I have done quite a lot in the past. I mean, I went through, I, I was on the draft draft legal circuit for a while. So I did the British Super Series and the European and Continental Cup right. um, sort of race series for a while. Um, so I am relatively experienced with draft legal racing. But yeah, the efforts are a lot more punchy um, when people are sort of pulling through. There'll typically be large spikes in power. And whoever designs triathlon courses thinks it's a fantastic idea to stick dead turns everywhere. They just love them. They love a dead turn, um, which is wonderful if you're an athlete because you have 70 people sometimes plowing into a dead turn and then everyone sprints full gas out the other side. And if you're at the back of that pack, you will get shelled if you can't get back on again. Um, So yeah, you better be able to sprint out of those turns. Um, But to be honest, triathlon racing is, is... a bit peculiar because sometimes these bike rides turn into a massive procession and you will just soft tap round at 150 watts 
and and that's all there is to it sometimes um and you'll typically get a a few very good athletes the very strong guys will will still pull turns because they just will um and everyone else will just sit on the wheel Mm. but yeah you you need a power profile where you're sort of 60 second down to five second efforts are, are pretty good you don't need a massive ftp to be competitive in these draft legal races um when i did draft legal racing i would always sit on the front in my inexperienced days and just pull mm. for the 20 or 40 k mm. and then my legs would be shot to pieces and now i've learned the hard way not yeah. to do that anymore so we're 10 da- roughly 10 days out from this main target race um and then, is that your last race this year, or like to target race? No, it won't be, um, because I had to take so much time off um, throughout the summer because of my bad shoulder. I will end up racing deep into winter this year. Right. I will possibly do a half Ironman the week after Europeans. Wow. Depending on how I feel, and I'm just I'm going to wing that one very much. So I'm just going to try and ride the wave of fitness I've got. Um, yes, yeah, so I might do half Ironman the week after. Which will that one be? It if... will be Outlaw X. If okay. I do it. So I've got unfinished business with the Outlaw series <laughs> after stacking it last time I was there. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, I'll probably be racing middle distance stuff abroad deep into winter. I'll probably go to the Middle East in November, December to do wow. a half out there. But yeah, I won't really take an off season now because I had to take so much time away from racing. Mm. So it'd be busy winter. So uh, before I forget then, this injury that's knocked you for six this year, yeah. um, what happened and what was the conclusion of the injury and how have, how have you managed to get over it? So there was glass and gravel all over the road whilst I was racing at the Outlaw Half. I was leading the race at the time and well pulled through to the mini group I was in. It was me and two other guys. Glass and gravel all over the road. Um, nothing I could have done about it really. I run very thin tyre, the run course of speeds. But unless you were running a solid tyre, that was puncturing your tyre, basically. I mean, my tyre was just slashed to pieces. Um, couldn't slow down in time to basically stop, and it just chucked me off. Wow. Um, so 60k an hour, I came off. Um, pumped my head, right shoulder, right hip, right knee, right ankle, and then scraped on the gravel. So I had pretty bad road rash. I had grade 2 damage to the rotator cuff complex on my right shoulder. Um and then just a variety of sort of low-grade soft tissue injuries all down the right side. Quite Not particularly pleasant. Yeah. So yeah. how much time off did you have to have off the bike? or Well, off, off all three disciplines in total then, like in terms of not no training at all? So I was told by the consultant at the hospital that it would be 12 to 16 weeks. Right. In reality, it was three days before I was back on the bike. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, she, she basically looked at the shoulder injury. And, I mean, I'd done sort of a minor assessment on it. So I, I roughly knew what was going on. I was also assessed on site by two of my teammates who happened to be doctors as well. So I was quite lucky there. Pretty sure it wasn't broken. And when I went to hospital afterwards as well, pretty sure it wasn't broken there as well. But it's difficult to know in the very mm. early stage because of the swelling and everything that's going on. But pretty sure it wasn't broken. Pretty sure I knew what was going on with it. Um, so yeah, basically I rested my arm on a stepladder right. and turbo trained yeah, yeah. after three days. Hopefully. Um, when I went back to the fracture clinic to get it x-rayed further down the line, it wasn't broken. She, the consultant who I saw was pretty useless. Didn't really know what she was looking for. Yeah. And shoulders are the thing I specialize in. Right. Um, it's what I wrote my thesis on. Um, so I just said, look, can you book me in for two MRIs and two X-rays? She was reluctant to do so, but I said, look, I will take care of everything else. Just 
just book those in for yeah. me, please, so I can get follow-up scans just to see where it's it's at. She eventually kind of backed down and, and booked the scans in for me. Um, yeah, and then I just rehabbed it. And oh. yeah, I trained on my turbo trainer, sort of three, four hours a day with my arm resting on step ladders. Fair play. So um, back cycling fairly early. What about yeah. running and swimming? I'm, I'm assuming swimming took a, a long while to get back into. Swimming's taken a long time. It's probably taken till these last three or four weeks to be able to swim pain-free, right. which is why I've not done too much swim training. I'm, I'm not swim unfit now. I mean, I'm back doing big volume sessions, but it's, it's taken a long time mm. to get it back completely pain-free. Running as well, I, I ran with my arm kind of in a makeshift sling. Um, but it, it was incredibly painful to do so. But I didn't want to unload yeah, completely. Because yeah, right. if you take a long period of time away from running, mm. you have to reload stuff like your tendon structure. So your Achilles becomes sore. You end up with shin splints. So it's, it was worth the pain to just put yeah. some load through my joints. So were those initial runs just steady jogs around kind of oh, thing? Yeah. They were awful. I mean, yeah. the very first run back, which was probably day 15 to 18, yeah. I mean, I thought I was going to have a heart attack when I was running. I mean, my heart rate was 191 beats per minute for like 20 minutes. I had to stop three wow. times. It, I mean, it just knocked me for six. I yeah. was useless. Um, so yeah, you, you lose your specific fitness pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so and and this is one thing, uh, again, somewhat relating it to me. Like I, I um, with with the running injuries that I've um, I've occurred, um, like the, the one thing that I've learn from knowing you and knowing my physio who obviously works closely with you is that a lot of running injuries or nearly all running injuries which are down to overuse you can't ever just say you know oh yeah just completely stop running and take three weeks off because um of the of that of that loading that's that's required and essentially you have that time off you you start again and you'll just repeat the same process again and 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 with my shin splints obviously I was um, dealing with it and backing off the volume a little bit, but the the, the complete wrong thing to do would be to completely have uh, a long time off to, to try and let that fully recover. Um, and like you say, especially with things like Achilles injuries and things like that, you, you need to kind of keep keep at it. And I've learned a lot through, through these injuries as well. Um, so just to take a slightly different turn with regards to conversation then, because... I must admit, Matt, like I listen to a lot of your training week um, and I'm in a very different position at the minute where, um, you know, I've got a young child, I've got, um, uh, you know, the, the business to run and, and so on. And a lot of external stresses, which I'm, you have as well. Um, and we'll talk about that soon. But even when I was in a position where I was at uni and studying um, and I was doing my biggest training weeks, it was nothing compared to what you're doing now. Um, tell me a little bit about like this whole kind of training and fatigue balance and how you're able to fit in not only the vast amount of volume of, of training that you do, but also the vast amount of quality. And do you think that you were, you know, in terms of nature versus nurture, do you think you were born with this ability to train that hard and 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 also born with the ability to perform that well um i'm not too sure i mean we have many a discussion don't we about balancing life and, and various mm. bits and bobs around work and stresses but what, one thing i can cope with is not a lot of sleep which i think is a big advantage to doing what i do and so i've used things like whoop and i use garmin now to track my sleep and i i don't sleep a lot 
I mean, I can get by on four hours a night, every night, for months on end. So I have more hours to play with during the day, which just allows me more time to fit things in. And we, we've had the discussion, haven't we? Is it long-term going to affect your health or is it affecting your health now? And I've kept a very, very close eye on things and I, I regularly pick things in my life to pieces and my heart rate variability is no different. My resting heart rate is no different. I don't feel any worse for it. I don't perform any worse in training. I still continue to improve even if I don't have a particularly large amount of sleep. Even if we pick it down to a sort of micro level whereby is it affecting my vitamin content? Is my mineral content any any worse? It, it, how does my mood feel? And I don't feel particularly worse if I'm doing lots of very intense training and having not a lot of sleep versus not a lot of training and sleeping lots. Mm. It, it just doesn't seem to make a massive amount of difference to me. And I just cope very, very well with a lot of intense training despite juggling a lot of things around it. And I don't come from a family that was kind of elite athlete based. I wasn't kind of pushed into anything either by my parents. I was left to my own devices. So I'm not sure if it's, if it's genetic or anything mm. like that either. I mean, I'm very unremarkable when it comes to physiology. I mean, I'm five foot 10, sort of size eight feet, not particularly low resting heart rate, not particularly high max heart rate. Average weight, I'm sort of 68 kilos. Nothing out, nothing there is, is remarkable at all. It's very, very, very average. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I just think maybe it's, yeah, my love of training maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely love massive hard workouts. Mm. Like my favorite training session is probably five by 30 minutes on the bike at three, <laughs> 310 watts. Like that is like, my favorite thing to do so that maybe gives you an idea of what sort of sadist i am yeah but it, i love um, that on the subject of sleep like as as matt said we've had this conversation many a times and to be quite honest like um the the whole that whole concept of matt being able to fit in that amount of training volume like we started on the subject of training volume and he was telling me what he was doing and it's it's that assumption that if you are doing that you must have absolutely everything like drilled down to a t from a recovery perspective you'd assume you're getting a minimum of eight hours every night if not more nine ten hours a night you'd assume that your nutrition is absolutely on point you'd assume that you've got very very little external life stresses but the reality of it is you know i mean i cannot even comprehend an average of four hours if I, you know, if I look back to the first few months of when Millie was born, my daughter was born, when I was getting an average of four hours of sleep, I was like a zombie. I was, I was, I mean, the thought, even the thought of not only training, but even exercising was just not even going through my mind. Like I remember when I was getting an average of four hours sleep, I tried a few easy jogs and a couple of turbo sessions here and there. And every single one of them was compromised. Like I yeah. felt, I felt awful. I was having to drink loads of coffee just to get through the day. Um, my um, attitude towards like motivation to work, motivation to train, motivation to eat well, and then everything like that was just massively compromised. But to say that you'd, getting four hours sleep and getting in the quality and performing as well as you are just absolutely blows my mind. Now we do know, you know, I won't talk about much about sleep, but what we know is that there is very, very few people in this world which can deal with that little amount of sleep. And studies have shown that as little as something like 4% of 
human population can do okay on four hours sleep. There is a chance that you are one of those 4%. Yeah. Um, and based on what you've told me, it sounds very likely, but um, you know, I cannot even comprehend uh, about that. Um, with regards to um, your your training week then, what do you do anything else would you say in terms of um optimizing your recovery like you've you know you've said that your sleep's fairly horrific yeah um is there anything else like aside from sleep well let's talk about nutrition um (laughs) (laughs) it's uh it's a subject i wanted to bring up again and again we've had many conversations about it before um matt is always telling me my diet is absolutely impeccable and and very fantastic um and yeah, to most people's extent, it is. And I asked, I've asked Matt many a times what his diet's like, um, and it's not what you might expect. Tell me a bit about, from your perspective, how you would summarize your diet. It's pretty poor, in a in a very broad nutshell. It's not always poor, but it's it's not great. Um, I mean, I do have a dietitian. I mean, my dietitian is the guy who sponsors me and is the guy responsible for me having eat, drink, win plastered across the front of my suit. Um, but my day-to-day diet is not fantastic. It's not atrocious, but sometimes it's pretty bad. It's not the kind of stuff you would expect. I mean, I got a notification from McDonald's the other day saying I've got an achievement because I have 10 app orders, which I was like, <laughs> it's not a good thing really, is it? Because I've not had the app very long. Um, but yeah, it's not fantastic, but certainly when it comes to racing and training it's pretty dialed in my, my diet is on point when it needs to be for racing because it's what works for me but day to day i mean i will typically have especially if i'm going out training i will have white carbohydrates in the morning so be it cocoa pops or white toast and as awful as that sounds that works for me when i'm doing a big training session mm. and when i finish training i mean we've had this discussion haven't we you might have a smoothie or something very healthy and i might have a cheeseburger or something like that post-session, so I'll nip to the service station next to my house and just eat crap, Mm. Um, whereas you will fill yourself with micros and, (laughs) yeah, the appropriate macros, and I'll do the opposite and have a protein shake. And then if I'm rushing and and stuff on a night, again, it might be more white carbohydrates with a bit of protein chucked in there, but it's not particularly dialed in. Mm. It's not super clean. It's not lots and lots of veg. It's it's not weighed out or portioned Mm -hmm. by any means but I eat stuff which makes me feel good or that I train very well off Mm. and that works for me. Mm. So if I've had a super busy day training and I'm very tired after working out all day, I don't want the stressor then of having to cook a meal. So I will eat something which I just enjoy and makes Mm. me feel good. And if that's a McDonald's and I've trained for five hours and worked 10, then that's a McDonald's Mm. and so be it. And if I then sit and eat a bag of chocolate peanuts afterwards, I'm fine with that as well. Because there's a good chance I'll have burnt through 5,600 cal- five to 6,000 calories. So they're going to need to go back in. Absolutely. And as long as I get some micronutrient from somewhere, which I do do, then I'm happy to get the calories however I can. Yeah. And, and I guess, I mean, on the flip side, you know, some people might be listening to this. And if I didn't know you and know your lifestyle and your yeah. reasons behind it, I'd be listening to this thinking... What's he doing? He needs to sort it out because if he ate a lot better, he'd perform a lot better. The reality is it's like hierarchy of kind of importance. Matt is burning through a substantial amount of calories per day. Not only that, he is training three or four times per day 
with fairly short intervals in between those sessions. And the reality is, if Matt goes and does a swim session at six o'clock in the morning, finishing at half seven, and then in an hour's time, he's going to be on the bike doing some horrifically hard intervals. Does he have a bowl of Cocoa Pops, which is 500 calories, which is going to digest very quickly, which is going to get into the bloodstream nice and easily, not be sat in the stomach for very long? Or does he have that 500 calories of fruit and veg and a whole plethora of different micronutrients and fiber, which is going to be sat in his stomach, which is going to take ages to digest and not do what it needs to do from a performance perspective. And that's ultimately what a lot of your nutrition approach comes down to. It's like, okay, what does my body need now to perform well for the next training session and recover from the previous training session? It's not necessarily thinking about long-term health, long-term this, long-term that. Now, there is a question in my mind about, yeah, long-term health, but ultimately you do still have days, arguably easier training days or rest days if you ever have them, where you will typically eat a lot healthier. You'll make sure you get your micronutrients in and so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah, that is true every so often. Um, and I would, I would assume, based on what you've told me in the past, that yeah, you are ticking off that kind of minimum effective dose of those micronutrients, the general fiber contents and things like that. Yeah. Um, but around training sessions, which is like, 24 hours of the day basically you yeah. need to eat very palatable very easy to digest foods yeah and that's basically what i do i mean i have a horrendous stomach like it is the most sensitive thing known to mankind i mean i can't cope with high amounts of fiber i can't cope with any fruit or any vegetables and i don't know why i mean i've been under assessment for the best part of three years with various gastro consultants trying to find out why and i just can't cope with it so it's white carbohydrates because they work for me mm. and if cocoa pops works so be it i mean that's that's what my body can stomach before a hard training session you see from my perspective uh to be devil's advocate as it were Mm. now if i was having a consultation with you and you were one of my athletes and you we were talking about this um i would kind of agree with you to a certain extent but what I would be maybe saying, you you mentioned in that um, earlier conversation that you don't necessarily weigh your food. Is that right? So if you're having a bowl of Cocoa Pops pre-session, do you not yeah. weigh your food either, typically? No, typ- I mean, I have weighed food in the past, so I just tend to know roughly right. what's in. I yeah. mean, if we, we both kind of done sport for long enough to know that. And I mean, I'm, you've probably used MyFitnessPal or mm. I've used Libro in the past as well. So we know roughly how many, yeah. you know, 30 grams is this much, mm. 60 grams is this much. So you have a rough, yeah. rough idea. So you know by eye. Yeah, yeah, you do. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Because like I say, I, I think, at, you know, at your level, um, you know, there's this term, which I, again, is fairly cliche at the minute. It's these marginal gains. And yeah. to know that, you know, knowing by eye is one thing, but I also know the difference between 70 grams of Cocoa Pops and 80 grams of Cocoa Pops doesn't look that different. But that can make a difference in a training session if you are, um, you know, an extra eight, nine, ten um, grams of, of carbohydrates depleted. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's um, it's an interesting topic, and I think it would shock a lot of people that are listening to this podcast to know that yeah, you, you know, you are really, really high performing athlete, and your diet isn't necessarily, you know, self confessed isn't that on point. Um, so, go on then. Favorite post 
um, post training session or post hard race food? Pizza. Pizza. Hands, hands down, pizza. Yeah, every day of the week. Yeah. And and is there? Have you got a favourite type of pizza? I like that really fatty ham and cheese and mush uh, ham and cheese and mushroom on into it with mascarpone cheese. Yeah, the more calories the better. <laughs> so yeah, it's like a thousand calories, isn't it? What is so, this? Yeah. Domino's is it? No, oh. no, it's like the Max and Spencer's type. Ah, yeah. right. Yeah, that's my sort of purse race treat if I ever have one. It's like a thousand to eleven hundred calories worth of pizza. But, you yeah. see, for me, interestingly, whether it's because my body is very used to highly nutritious foods, but yeah. for me. If I have a pizza like that, the yeah. next morning I can feel it. Like the next morning, yeah. my guts are bad. Like yeah. I'm, you know, I'm. I would say my guts are like feeling a bit bloated. And if I was to do a training session that next morning, yeah. there would be problems. See, I don't get that. So really? if I ate really healthy and really clean, I would have that problem. Really? Yeah, because of the high fiber content of what you eat, like all the vegetables, fruits, yeah. etc. So I then couldn't run the next day. Mm. So I, I have to be very, very mindful of the amount of fiber content I take if I'm going to run the next day, which mm. is most days. So I can't get up and run mm. if I'm full of you know vegetables, basically. Mm. From, um, I mean, yeah, to analyze it a little bit more. So for example, my pre-race, if I was racing the next morning, if I was racing on Sunday morning at nine o'clock yeah. in the morning, my pre-race meal would be very simple it wouldn't have much fiber in it. Um, so it would be, for example, white basmati rice and a can of tuna. Yeah. I wouldn't have many veggies, if any veggies, yeah. real easy to digest. What I absolutely wouldn't do is add loads of veg, but also critically what I wouldn't do is have a pizza because I think I think what it is with the pizza is it's the amount of cheese that they usually put on. And yeah. I think it's the dairy of the cheese which which upsets my stomach. Yeah. Um, but are you suggesting, yeah, you could easily go to Domino's, have a massive pizza on a Saturday night and perform well on the race on a Sunday morning? Yeah, absolutely. And is that is that a general protocol for you? P- I mean, pizza is always my pre-race meal. Is it, is it actually? Pizza is my pre-race oh, meal. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, oh, like 99% of the time. Yeah, because... If you race internationally, you can nearly always get a pizza. Yeah. Where where in the world can't you at least to some degree find a margarita pizza? However, you can also take a can of tuna with you in your backpack yes. and a, a microwave bag of rice that you can just have cold or stick in the microwave. You can, but I race well off a of pizza. Like that <laughs> is that is what I know. Like to be, I will I will often have basmati rice with some tuna. That is yeah. one of my go to yeah. pre training snacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I prefer a pizza. Fair enough. Yeah. So it you makes see, me feel yeah, good. Yeah. You see, for me, I would usually like think, okay, what's going to be the easiest to digest? I mean, yeah, I would never think about racing on a pizza. I know it wouldn't work for me. If it works for you, fair enough. I would have the kind of tuna and the rice the night before. And then I would think, if I did, I mean, I do enjoy a pizza, don't get me wrong. I would think about that pizza as I'm racing <laughs> and then congratulate myself from finishing and performing the race with the pizza that evening. That's probably be my approach. But anyway, it yeah. just shows though... I'll uh, bookend it with pizzas. Yeah. <laughs> race in the middle is my sandwich. <laughs> but yeah. And uh, it just shows though, like, you know, it, it just shows it's about what works for you. And, yeah. you know, what works for me doesn't work for Matt. What works for Matt doesn't work for me. Um, there's some argue- argument to suggest that, you know, both of us could definitely probably refine some things in our diet. Um, which we don't know about yet, and and this is part and package of being being an athlete. But I know that you've tested many times, haven't you? You've yeah. tried different things, and you've been around the game for long enough um, to go there. Um, now, 
one of the subjects I wanted to cover in this podcast, um, which I must admit we're going to glance over because we're running out of time. We've already gone over the hour. Uh, yeah, it's just going ridiculously quick. Is this whole whole concept of quality versus quantity? Yeah. Because from you know a common, I mean, I I coach um, a few triathletes on my books, and when I'm doing that initial consultation with those triathletes, one of the common themes that I get from them is this whole uh, yeah this concept of quality versus quantity, and this kind of thing about getting sessions done and acting like these sessions are like tick boxes and uh, a lot of you know triathletes are saying to me things like you know i'll say what what training do you currently do in a week and they say oh monday i'll run tuesday i'll bike wednesday i'll swim monday i'll run and so on yeah and i'm like okay give me a bit more detail about the training i just want a, a five minute spiel from you about like your typical athlete who works nine to five yeah they do Olympic distance triathlon. They might be looking into doing a few half Ironman triathlons. What's your general advice in terms of training, about scheduling sessions, and this whole kind of concept of quality versus quantity? So my kind of key tips around juggling training around work is if you train after work, typically the work will compromise your training, which is why I always try and train before work. So if you have the ability to do that, get your training done first and chill out at work because you will feel mentally a lot better about what you're doing the rest of the day once your training's done. You don't have to worry about what, and this is back to nutrition again, you don't have to worry about what you're eating as much and you can kind of relax and, and that stressor will be taken away from you because you can just relax and focus on your work. So that's the biggest piece of advice I would say is get your training done before you go to work. But in terms of balance and number of sessions and what you're doing, um, if you are pressed for time and trying to juggle it around work don't just try and tick sessions off don't just squeeze the running where you can squeeze the bike in, squeeze the swimming take the time to, to plan and get your quality sessions done when you've got time to do them and don't be worried about taking days off if you've got kids and financial commitments and a busy working life it's absolutely fine to take a day off so that when it comes to the weekend you can actually do your quality sessions well which is, is something triathletes are absolutely rubbish for doing. They just want to see green boxes on training peaks, irrespective of how rubbish that session actually is when you open it up. So say you've got a two-hour ride on training peaks with various intervals, it will still turn green if you've done the, the duration, will, and the intervals yeah. are semi-done. Mm. But that is absolutely useless if the intervals are all done crap. Mm. Like, if you've got, I don't know, let's say four by five minutes just as a random session, and you're meant to ride at 300 watts, and you spend all your time riding at 250, well, that's useless. It's mm. no use to anybody. Mm. So save a session to a time when you can actually hit the numbers. And if you need to take a day off, take a day off because you, you can't always fit every session in. And there's nothing wrong with dropping a session and taking some time off to actually make your stuff specific than trying to squeeze things in. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, very, definitely a, a common theme um, that I found when, when you're yeah, kind of uh, giving... Um, giving talks to triathletes and and um like i say they get into this mentality of having knowing that they've got three disciplines to cover and then just making sure that they're regularly covering those three disciplines in terms of doing them um or you know and i, th I think i spoke to one triathlete recently and we sat down and we talked 
and we came to the conclusion that his cycling was the main discipline which was lacking. He was ve- he was a very good swimmer. He was an average runner, but his he his his ability to perform on a bike was was not good. And we we talked a little bit about his training. And in his tra- in, in his current training, he was describing to me that the the intervals he did when he was swimming, he would go to three three swims a week, and he would balance all all three disciplines fairly well. But he would go th- to three swims a week, and each of those swims would be very structured. It would have intense intervals in there, and it would be a really productive session. But then he's told me about his bikes, which is also three three times a week. And when I said, okay, what do you do on the bike? He just said, oh, I bike Monday, Wednesday, Friday for 20 miles each. And I just do a 20 mile loop as hard as I can. And he said, I always get back. And I, if I haven't averaged uh, more than 20 miles an hour, I won't, I won't be happy. Yeah, um, the most useless metric in cycling. Exactly. And I, and I tried my best to hold back my chuckles. Um, and I said, okay, well, you've told me that biking is your, your worst discipline. Um, and I said, look, I'm going to try and get the, out, the answer out of you here. You've told me that cycling is your worst discipline, yet you have told me that you do structured intervals, really good quality intervals in your running and your swimming. Why don't you do it in your cycling? And he said, oh, well, you know, with the Viking, I just go hard for an hour each time and I feel like I'm having a really effective workout. And I said, do you not, have you not considered that when you go onto your bike, you're probably going riding every single bike session at exactly the same intensity, which is neither hard enough nor easy enough. You're not going easy enough to recover, nor are you going hard enough to initiate a, a stimulating um, a stimulating training session, which is going to give you an adaptive response. And he kind of paused for a second and he was like, you know, that, you know what, Tom, that's a very good point. And anyway, we, we've, we've given him a bit of structure and straight away within two or three weeks, his biking performances started to improve. Would you say that that's a very common trait of a triathlete? Absolutely. It's an enormous common trait of a triathlete. But it's funny that certain people from certain backgrounds bring certain habits to the table when they start triathlon. So someone without cycling experience will do the same as a runner without experience. They will go as fast as they can for an hour. 20 miles is typically the distance, isn't Mm. it? They'll do 20 miles as fast as they can and they record the average speed on Strava and everyone gives them likes because it's 19.7 miles Mm. an hour. And when you start running, you run a 5K as fast as you can every week. And you see small, small, mm. small, and smaller like incremental gains until you plateau, mm. and that will be the same with average speed. And then triathletes who come from a swimming background, they will always be interval based, but they'll never do they'll never do what you do in cycling and running, which is like a long effort. Mm. So it's it's weird what everyone brings to the table from their various backgrounds, and you should really take a little bit from each each one really. So. Swimmers will always do intervals because they're used to swimming hard. Mm. So they'll bring intervals every single day. But how often does a swimmer do a, a 90 minute easy swim? Well, that's something that swimmers never do, mm. but a cyclist will always do that. Mm. And someone with no cycling experience will just do this hard ride. And then a runner will, who's learning to run will also just do a 5K as fast as they can. But if they took the swimming intervals that they did and brought it across to running and cycling, they would see much, much bigger improvements. Because mm. it, it's not difficult, isn't training, in, in a nutshell. I mean, the sessions can be quite crossovery, I think. So, say you did 10 400s in a swimming pool, it's exactly the same session as 10 by a mile running mm. or 10 by five minutes on the bike. Mm. It's exactly the same session. Mm. Not hardly anything changes. Yeah. 10 400s is a five minute effort. I mean, I'm talking from in my point of view here. It's a five-minute effort in the pool. It's a five-minute effort when you're running. And 
10 by, you know, five minutes is five minutes on a bike. And all of them would have nearly equal benefits. And I feel like you can learn a lot from each discipline. Like, yeah. you know, when I think back to my swimming days, um, uh, I, I would argue that a lot of through through and throughout swimmers are definitely overtraining. Um, <laughs> Massively. I mean, you know, f- yeah. from what I remember, essentially six days a week, they're going to the pool at four o'clock and they're swimming for two hours. And every single one of those sessions will be interval based. Yeah. Um, swimmers, swimmers, this is why swimmers retire so young as well, is they obliterate themselves in their late teens and yeah. early 20s and they're done. Like swimmers retire at 25. Yeah. There's a reason why. Yeah. But this is also probably part of the reason why I don't need much sleep is if you've ever been a competitive swimmer, you just don't know what sleep is. Yeah, no. like you've got no idea. And you, you know, and then as a cyclist, contrastingly, typically cyclists are very good at making sure they're getting in long, steady mile. As through and through cyclists, yeah. they get big volume in and then they get a couple of very intense intervals in. But you can use, you can cross these different disciplines over. What you learn from a discipline, you can you can transfer over it into this other discipline. Yeah. Um, I'm very conscious of time, um, so I'm going to kind of wrap things up a little bit. Um, and we've got some questions that I wanted to ask you. So these are questions that um, a lot of my listeners to the podcast and um, and Instagram followers have asked in the last day or so. Um, and I'm going to read through these um, just for full clarity. Matt does not know what these questions are going to be. Um, and some of them are definitely very specific to triathlon and some of them aren't. Um, we'll keep them fairly quick fire. So question number one, which of the three disciplines do you enjoy the most? Cycling. Nice and easy. Why yeah. is that? Um, I think it's quite sociable for the most part, even though I ride on my own a lot. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> um, but I do, I do like that there is some social aspect to it. I, I often do rides and I will stop and see my family once I've done my intervals. So I quite like that I can do that. I'll stop and fill my water bottle up, have a chat with my nan. Um, yeah, I'll go see my dad or see my sister's dogs or some, something like that. There's there's some sort of social aspect to it. And I mean, if you ever look at my Strava, I ride up and down main roads a lot. You do, yeah. But it's much nicer than the black line at the bottom of a swimming pool. Mm. And when, that, when that's all you've had for 10 years, anything is better than it. Mm. So even though it's a main road, I still much prefer cycling. Fair. Um, how do you pace the bike leg in a try brackets non-draft legal so non-draft legal it depends where you come out to swim and it depends on the standard of race that you're doing if you are in the luxurious position where you come out to swim first and you are at the front of the ride you just ride to the power that you've scheduled in which for me is like 310 to 320 watts for two hours Mm -hmm. so i schedule in that power and i smooth it out on climbs and free wheel descents if you come out midway down the swim you would typically ride up to the pack because even though you can't draft you will work together as a, as a working group so you will typically ride hard to get to the group in front of you and then you will typically just ease off in that group mm-hmm. and then it'll turn into a running race and I mean you know you've answered that question on the basis that you're trying to win a triathlon there which yep. is very specific to you for a lot of these listeners they are essentially just trying to do the triathlon in yep. as fast as time as they can but they're unlikely going to be trying to win the, the event themselves yeah um would you would would those individuals look for a certain power um in let's say an olympic distance triathlon would you ride to a certain power or heart rate or just on feel um I typically, I always train to power, but I nearly always race to feel. 
um, as contradictory as that might be. Mm. And obviously, average speed is a completely useless metric until it comes to racing, mm. where average speed is the only thing that matters mm. because at the end of the day, average speed trumps all, yeah. irrespective of CDA or any, anything else. Average speed wins. Um, but yeah, for, for the average person um, who's not trying to win a triathlon, I, I would pace it evenly. Um, is the best way to do it. Mm. Do not burn all your matches straight away mm. early on in the ride. And one of the biggest things as well is to fuel early on. Mm. Um, but yeah, I also, yeah, heart rate I find largely irrelevant in mm. in racing for me. I agree. Um, I can add on about 10, 15 beats per minute just from the uh, race anxiety and adrenaline yeah. uh, compared to training sessions. Question number three, what is your FTP? My FTP, so I have two different values. So one for a road bike, one for a time trial bike. My road bike, uh, we're going 20 minutes or an hour? Uh, let's go for an hour. So an hour on the road bike, I was 392. And on the time trial bike, I was 376. Wow, they're quite close as well. Yeah, so I ride my time trial bike a lot. Mm. Um, but when I when I do a test on a road bike, it feels so easy mm. because you have m- large muscle recruitment. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're quite close because I spend a lot of time on you the see, time trial bike. You see, this is what amazes me because... So bearing in mind, Matt, you can you can you can ride, let's go for your road bike, hmm. three hundred and ninety two watts for an hour. Yeah. Now but when you're doing like two minute max efforts. Yeah, I can ride three hundred and ninety three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got no top end. Two minute max efforts. Yeah, I'm at, useless. From what I know you're like just like four hundred and fifty, five hundred watts. Yeah, like. I can't do much. I mean, to be fair, when we went to Goodmanham it was like nearly 600 watts. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, it and, was, yeah. And since we've done that, and since I've actually been sharpening things up, I mean, today my 92nd was like just shy of 700. Oh, nice. You've so improved like it, then. It yeah, sharpened yeah, up pretty yeah, yeah. quickly. But I don't have a, a top, top yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like, say we're doing sprints to yeah. a lamppost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would beat me 100 times out of yeah, 100 yeah, yeah. unless I stuck a stick in your yeah. spokes. Yeah, like, <laughs> like you just would. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the whole thing about training specificity because yeah. albeit I would beat Matt in a sprint, um, I mean... <laughs> The, the the whole concept of 392 watts for an hour absolutely blows my mind like I, I'm pretty sure I'm confident that if I trained like that for a good full year just trying to improve on that I don't think I could touch that kind of value so I, you've clearly got some very good talent there but the thing is I also so to make that so specific I never touch the top end yeah this is that's like true. Nine, yeah. 99 times out of 100 I never do this type of training no. and I haven't yeah. done this for four years yeah, yeah, yeah. so like my, my big key sessions are like five by 30 minutes yeah, at yeah. 310 320 yeah. and i find that easy yeah so i would feel like it's that, just absolutely <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean yeah one times 30 minutes is enough for me um <laughs> yeah how do you dis- how do you balance three disciplines while managing life and does this impact relationships <laughs> yeah i mean this could be an old podcast in itself couldn't it yeah i mean i've had very difficult toxic relationships and they've been negatively affected by training because at the end of the day if you're in a relationship with somebody nine times out of ten they want to spend time with you mm. and it's not because you don't want to spend time with them mm. but when you when you race at an elite level you have to train mm. like if, if you are selected by gb selectors you're expected to turn up and not be shit mm. basically so you have to train you are obliged to not be rubbish. Yeah. So yeah, it, it negatively affects that. Um, but in, in terms of juggling it around, 
Um, like, like I discussed earlier, I mean, I, I tend to train early in the mornings um, and get things done as soon as I can. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't always like to do that. I just like to train when I want to as well. Mm. I mean, I, I do what I feel comfortable doing and if mm. it impacts negatively on my relationship, the relationship mm. normally fizzles out. Yeah, and this is the thing, the, the, the reality of it is if anyone does come into your life, um, they need to be fully aware of what your commitment is as an athlete. And they need to know that you're going to be selfish at times. They need to know that your training essentially is going to come first. Um, And they need to know that from the first and foremost, you, you wouldn't ever take a relationship where you, you know, the first few weeks you realize that they want to spend every working um, waking minute with you because you know that that's unrealistic. Um, So yeah, that's the reality of it. Um, Question number five, I think. Do you take on fuel slash carbs in Olympic distance try? And if so, how and when? So in contrast to how terrible my diet is, my race nutrition is as dialed in as you could possibly imagine. Like I have tested and tested and tested, so my nutrition is so dialed in. So my Olympic distance protocol is I have roughly... 20 gram, well, I said roughly. Pizza the night before. Yeah, pizza the night before. <laughs> and then three hours out, I will always have roughly 40 grams of Cocoa Pops mm-hmm. or a, a very a rice-based carbohydrate. So sometimes it's basmati rice, and yeah. so depending on the race time. I take one gel, which for me is 22 grams of carbohydrates, 45 minutes before the start, mm-hmm. 200 milligrams of caffeine, mm-hmm. which I start taking about 20 minutes out and finish taking eight minutes out from the race start. I then take, obviously, no fuel in the swim. You can't fuel in the swim. Um, as soon as we get on the bike, I have two gels with me and I have a SIS beta fuel on my down tube bottle in 500 milliliters of water, mm-hmm. which I will drink. That's 82 grams of carbohydrates or 84, depending on the flavor. I will then take one of those gels normally. I just carry a spare. Mm-hmm. So that's 100 grams of carbohydrates on the bike, which is roughly 52 to 54 minutes. I take that early on the bike to give my stomach time mm-hmm. to, to process it. Off the bike, I will carry a gel with me, which I will take at four to four and a half K with some water. Mm-hmm. And that's my fueling strategy. Wow. Um, it never changes. So what's total race time for Olympic distance? Um, if I'm going full gas, it'll be about 148. Right. Okay. Yeah. You see, that's um, from an outsider looking in, that, that seems like right at the top end of kind of what I would naturally prescribe an athlete to, to be taking over that duration yeah but we have to consider the intensity of it you know yeah the, 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 for, for, a, for a lot of kind of amateur racers who are racing for an hour and 40 minutes you wouldn't need anywhere near that because no. they're not racing at that kind of intensity no but, i mean i'm going full gas if i'm going full gas i mean you're mm. looking at a 17 18 minute swim mm. you're looking at a 52 minute ride 53 minute ride and then a 30 31 minute tanker mm. with transitions in between mm. so it's full gas and and i've done sort of testing in the labs and i burn carbohydrates yeah. I'm, I'm not really a fat burner but i i go through carbohydrates mm. pretty quick mm. so next question will you ever do an iron man yes when is that me, likely to be to ex- uh, expand so i was meant to do two this year i was entering into um ironman uk and ironman wales this year right. um the shoulder injury just put a scupper to that for me should have done two won't be doing any this year probably won't be doing any next year now because i'm really enjoying the the intensity and mm, yeah so i'll probably do a few more years of short stuff before i become too old but yeah i'll definitely do an ironman and do you think uh i mean this is purely feeding off that question for something that i'm interested in mm. 
like if I was to ask you to do an Ironman tomorrow mm. on the prep that you've currently got, yeah. like obviously you'd get round it, but what kind of Ironman, like, have you kind of roughly worked out where you'd be time-wise? Um, I mean, my half is, my, I think my best half, I, I did Vitruvian in like 3.50, maybe slightly under 3.50, right. which is like a 20, a 21, 22 minute swim. You're looking at a two hour five bike and then a, I don't know, 111, yeah. 112 half. I mean, you can't just double the time no. um, because it's a completely different yeah, yeah, yeah. monster as an Ironman mm. because of the amount of fat burn you, you have. I mean, have you ever done a marathon? Not a pure one in a race, but I have run a marathon in training. Yeah. Mm. Um, but if, you, if you're if used to doing four hours of racing, a marathon feels like not very yeah, long yeah, work. Yeah. Mm. So for runners, a marathon feels like a mm. huge distance, but mm. it's, it's basically no. a two and a half hour long run yeah, yeah, yeah. if you get a wriggle on. Yeah, that's... Um... But, but I would... If I if I did an Ironman, I would be targeting close to eight hours. Mm. Like, and for you, know. you for you now, because as a cyclist, you look at a hundred and hundred twelve mile bike and you think, but yeah. oh, it's a piece of piss, like you know. But um, but you, do, does in terms of apprehension, yeah. if you would have any, is mm. it the run that gives you the most apprehension? Yeah, I mean, the marathon's yeah. a long, bollardy way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, is. I mean, the swim is a swim. I mean, you're swimming for fifty odd mm. minutes. I mean, and, and hundred and twelve miles on a bike, the, these. Ironman bike courses for the most part they're not always like Wales is mm. savage but yeah. for the most part they're pretty flat pretty mm. fast I mean you'll soft tap along at 27 miles an hour doing 270 watts for four and a bit hours and that's that's just what it is mm. there's no ifs and buts about it but that's what it takes and mm. you know and then yeah you've got to run a marathon on knackered legs but if you feel right you'll be fine mm. the question is if your body doesn't cope with the fuel then you're in trouble that's so. it um Next question. Is it true that you had a full fish and chips supper after Allathorpe? And did you have scrab- scraps or not? Full fish and chips supper, yeah. And mushy peas, because that's one of five a day, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you like fish and chips? I love fish and chips. So you still prefer pizza over fish and chips? I do prefer pizza over mm. fish and chips, but I only have fish and chips once every year mm. or so. Oh, do you? Yeah, I don't have fish and that's chips. Leg- that's l- I have fish and chips like... Once a month, ish. Yeah, yeah. I really like fish and chips. I love them, but yeah, um, um, I always have mushy peas because then I feel healthy. <laughs> <laughs> and I always have scraps as well. No, I, I just like mushy peas. But yeah, fair enough. Um, next question: <laughs> What is your least favorite session that you've done in the last three months? My least favorite session. I did a very hard track session recently. Um, it had some nasty. 800 it had 500 meter reps on it um so we did i think it was six fives something along those lines and we bookended the session with a 500 very very fast either side and the wheels just collapsed on me on the last 500 and i basically groveled my entire way around the track and could hardly move nearly vomited um so a very very short session but i think it was something like six 500s um and it, yeah, I just dragged myself around it and it felt horrendously awful. So, which looks like a very easy session on paper. Yeah. In reality, is pretty awful. Um, anything longer, I find pretty manageable, really. Next question. It's a good question, this. Uh, where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? A long time. Oh, 10 um, years. And also, yeah, answer that first question first. I mean, 10 years, I'll be 40. So I. S- I almost certainly won't be competing at this level anymore. Mm. I mean, despite the current of former Ironman world champion being 41 years old, I don't intend to be competing at this level at that age. I'll probably do this for another five or six years, maybe, depending on how life pans out. 
but I will probably still be competing and probably at age group level. Mm. But I don't really want to be... Because it's very stressful and very expensive. Do you feel like... I feel like a natural progression as you age, which doesn't necessarily make sense. But Well, it does make sense from a physiological level. Typically, the distances get longer. Do you feel like at an age 40, you'll be like an age group uh, triathlete doing... Ironman and a half. No, because I don't want to be doing Ironman really at that age. An Ironman's so damaging. It takes so much out of you. I will probably progress up through the distances over the next six years and then I will drop down the distances because I won't want to train 30 hours, 25 hours a week when Mm. I'm 40. Mm. I would rather do 12 to 15 hours of training and be really competitive at age group level, Um, which will be frustrating for everyone at that age because if if, typically if you've been professional or very good, you clean up at age group level once you drop down mm. um, because there is a big gap there. Because age group, age group triathlon, the triathletes tend to be good at two disciplines or one, which is what triathlon always was. Triathlon was always you're good at one or two mm. and you'll be mint, but it's not like that anymore. Yeah. You have to be world class at three nearly. Absolutely. So. Last question then. Um, what would you say are the main signs of overtraining, specifically in triathletes or runners? So from a clinician's point of view, the main signs I would look for if I was assessing somebody are repeated niggles and small level injuries, which keep reoccurring. Um, So that's a good thing to look for if if you're kind of a clinician identifying that. So if someone keeps getting repetitive, like lower limb injuries or back problems, that's a good sign that someone's pushing things a little bit too hard. If you're looking sort of at your metrics, if you've got increased heart rate variability, decreased heart rate variability, heart, uh, your resting heart rate is particularly high. That's a good sign of illness and overtraining as well. Um, that's the one time I use heart rate, actually, is I look at it in the morning and if I've got 10 to 15 beats up for no reason, so I'm not racing or anything, mm-hmm. that's a good sign that I'm not going to kill myself that day. Mm-hmm. That's one of my big markers I look for. If your quality of your sessions is decreasing massively throughout a training block, um, so say you can't hit numbers, um, when you come to running, if you've got like blocked calf syndrome, so your calves constantly feel full and fatigued, that's a good sign you're overtraining on running and you're unmotivated to train. That's mm. another big one. Cause that training is not just physical, is it? Mm. I mean, you have to want to do it. You mm. have to want, cause you are going out to suffer for the most part. So you have to want to do it. And if you're unmotivated to train, it's a good sign. You may be doing a bit too mm. much, I think. And this is one of the biggest things I've, uh, it's, it's something that people are constantly doing. Um, I find Training in general, it's easy to get motivated to train when you're seeing progress and yep. like across the board. And, and I'm sure that's the same for you. Like you've said that your running is massively improving in the last few few weeks, few months. And I bet that is incredibly motivating for you. And thus you'll probably have been like placing more emphasis on the running because you want to keep keep that yeah, improving. Absolutely. Um but for a lot of people, as soon as they don't see improvement, that's when the motivation goes downhill. And also that's when people start to just junk train as well. Like, you know, they'll, they'll find two or three weeks they've not improved and thinking, oh, maybe it's because I'm not training hard enough. So they'll go and train more and they'll try and get more volume in. Yeah. And therefore, actually, it might have the opposite effect. Maybe they're just overtrained and they need to rest and let themselves fully recover and then and then come come back through again. And if you're looking at your training and thought that you've never had an easy week for the past 10 weeks or whatever, it might be a, a telltale sign that you actually need to just uh, come down a little bit and then and then progress things up from there. That, that's a big thing, isn't it? Just quickly what you mentioned there, taking an adaptation week. Yeah. I mean, it, it's something that 
I mean, I see a lot of triathletes and runners in particular not take mm. is they'll do sort of 10 weeks without any adaptation. Mm. And it's mm. like, why? Yeah, yeah. I mean, your body doesn't absorb the fitness, so to speak, in a, in a very broad mm. nutshell. When you're doing it, you need to sit on your ass mm. on the sofa with your legs up and mm. chill out and just take things easy mm. to get the benefits from that. Yeah, you yeah. can't flog yourself for like two and a half months. And that's a very good point because a lot of people have been listening to the podcast, listening to what training you're doing and thinking, crikey, that's what I need to be doing. And then tomorrow they'll go out yeah. and do yeah, that time a week. Yeah. But the reality is that, yeah, you've, um, you've acclimatized yourself to that. And yeah. you will have these adaptation weeks and these easier blocks where you're yeah, completely backing off. Oh, I mean, I mean, I love an adaptation week. Mm. I mean, I still train in that period, but I'll just knock intensity mm. out quite mm. often for a week to 10 days. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I'll normally feel terrible when I first come back. But mm. once you start rebuilding again, after maybe the first week, you'll then start to mm. progress from where you were previously. I'll know it's one of um, Matt's adaptation weeks when I get an invitation to go for a run with him or something. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going for a, like, incredibly easy jog today. Do you fancy coming out for a tempo run, Tom? (laughs) Yeah, we should do six-minute mile. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, No, that's been great. Um, To to kind of round this conversation off, because it's been an hour and a half of talking now, Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Matt, and very, very good luck for 10 days' time. Um, do you feel like, as a bit of a closing statement, do you feel like you're on fairly good form for this race? And and knowing what you know, and I know I appreciate you don't know loads about the competition, but do you feel like you're in a, a good position to to get a good result? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm as fit as I can be now. I mean, nothing I do now is going to see massive improvements mm. um, before the race. The, there has been some of a start list release now, um, there is a current world champion there and the guy who's in second as well a couple of French guys who will probably drop sub 14 first 5Ks um, which I probably can't do I probably can't drop a 13.45 13.50 for the first 5 but at the end of the day two guys doing that is fine because they'll get brought back by the pack mm. um, but yeah I mean I'm in 14 low shape um, which is, is pretty good there's not a massive amount of guys who can do that mm. Um yeah, and I'm a pretty good cyclist. Um, I mean, I shouldn't really get dropped off the pack in 20k, mm. and then it's seven minutes full gas at the end. So I'm, I'm in good shape. I've, I've prepped as hard as I possibly can, and would like to think I'm in good shape for a, for a good result there. So it's 5k, 20k, two and a half k. Yeah. And where is this held? It's in Bilbao. Bilbao. And is it televised? Can we watch it somewhere? It's on Triathlon Live, so there is TV motorbikes following us around for that. Is that live? Is it? Or? That will be yeah. live. Yeah. Oh, mega. Yeah. Um. Brilliant. Well, I'm certainly going to be watching it and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how you get on. Um, Good luck for the race itself and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) 